Um, as with Daniel, so I hope with a very large proportion of you, I too spend uh, this time of year reviewing life a little, um, thinking about the year that's just gone, looking forward to the coming year. And uh, I keep a little note of it so I don't forget actually what uh, I was thinking and praying about at the turn of the year, every year, and uh, so I have the privilege of looking back over the years. And one thing impressed itself upon me as I did that this year, something that the Lord has been increasingly, I think, impressing upon my heart over the years, and it's this. All the things that we really need as believers are miraculous. As uh, Daniel um, intimated, an average Christian set of New New Year's resolutions is relatively boringly predictable, I think. Um, Read my Bible more, pray more, do battle with sin more. Um, And yet, as I get older, as I gain more experience, as I reflect on Scripture more, it seems to me that every single one of those resolutions will just fizzle out and fall to the ground very, very quickly if there is not actually something supernatural going on in our hearts. If God doesn't turn my Bible reading at least some of the time, into a thrilling experience and renewed vision of himself. I will give up. If God doesn't turn my prayer, at least some of the time, into an experience of intimacy and pleasure in his presence, then I will give up. If God doesn't actually help me in my battle with sin and give me a taste of the superior pleasure of knowing Christ and following him, which far outweighs the the fleeting pleasures of sin, then I will give up fighting those sins. I I can make some resolutions, I can screw my will up a little bit to, uh, to have another go. But if, it, if that is not borne along by the miraculous wind of the Spirit, it will fail. In fact, every aspect of a believer's life is essentially miraculous. And my increasing concern, actually, as the years go by, is that too often we just don't believe that. We think God has left us down here to get on on our own, that we can organise our own life, we can organise our church life corporately without any um, reference to, to, to him and particularly to his power and then we are surprised that we fall on our face 
and it does not work. One of the, one of the ways, it seems to me, that um, we uh, often betray our lack of confidence in God's miraculous work is when it comes to thinking about overt, obvious miracles. Um, we have been looking at 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 um, in the autumn and we're, we've just got two more sermons to complete the series uh, at the beginning of the year. And um, you will remember, I hope, those of you who've been here, the big question that underlies these three chapters in, in 1 Corinthians is what, is it, what does it look like to be spiritual? What does a spiritual person look like? What does a spiritual church look like? And in 1 Corinthians 12, um, the, the dominant answer that was given is that a spiritual person is a spiritually gifted person. People are given gifts. And um, the reactions that I picked up um, to, from, from you as we looked through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 were very interesting. Uh, to be honest, a majority of us took that broad truth, which is very true, that, that uh, um, every person is a gifted person and they thought about what their gifts might be, which was great as well, and, they, they, um, and many people resolved to use those gifts a little bit more, whether those were gifts of, 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 of helping others or of teaching or of, or of, of, of whatever. And then another group, who's, several of whom spoke to me, said, hang on, let's cut to the chase here. What 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about is miraculous gifts. Paul is talking about gifts of healing and miraculous powers, prophecy, those mysterious tongues, they said. Of course, it's broadly true and very, very valuable that we should think of our, of our gifts. But it's interesting how the British mind shies away from the miraculous dimension of the gifts that are talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. They say, come on, Peter, tell us what you think about that. Well, I think those... those uh, uh, those people were wise and insightful about us and our culture. We do shy away from that miraculous dimension that is just so prominent in the New Testament. So, as I promised, and uh, now we... Um, have got there. We are going to spend uh, some time this week and next week looking more specifically about the miraculous dimension of the gifts that uh, uh, are discussed in 1 Corinthians 12 uh, and 14. And um, 
most specifically tongues and prophecy which get the, the, the dominant mention in 1 Corinthians 14. The first question that we then have to address ourselves is do these supernatural gifts still exist? Now let me say at the outset that um, uh, whatever you believe about that and uh, the, 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 we don't make it an item of our church faith what, uh, what you believe about that we must believe as Christians that essentially the Christian life is supernatural. Okay, this is a small subset of, uh, of, of that issue, but essentially uh, to be a Christian is to be a supernatural creation of God. We cannot follow Christ unless God has supernaturally changed our hearts. We were once dead, we have been made alive by Christ. If you are not a supernatural creation of God, you are not a Christian here this morning. Full stop. So, although there is a debate amongst Christians... That debate is not about whether God works supernaturally. Every Christian who wants to call themselves a Christian must accept that. God works miracles. There are a hundred or so miracles in this room. But um, uh, having established that, the majority historical answer to this specific question, do these supernatural gifts still exist, um, is actually no. Um, mainly, um, sorry, let me, um, I thought I had more subheadings for you there. Mainly, um, if you read uh, ancient authors on the subject, that mainly that argument is supported by historical experience. Mainly they will say that we do not see these, these supernatural gifts, specifically of, of, of tongues, what they precisely are, we'll look at in a, in a moment. And so they say, uh, one way or another, these gifts must have fizzled out after the, uh, the early um, uh, decades of the church's life. Some will support that by theological arguments. They note, for instance, that the overtly miraculous gifts that are recorded in the Bible seem to be focused on authenticating a new work of God. So, uh, in the Old Testament, just to take one instance, Saul is anointed as king and he prophesies, which seems to authenticate him in that sense. Or in the book of Acts, we find the gospel crossing barriers, going to new places, people being very reluctant to think that these people could possibly be Christians, and God authenticates the reality of their their new life as Christians by them speaking in tongues, actually, specifically. And, of course, supremely in Jesus. You see this sort of great upsurge of the miraculous in the life and ministry of Jesus, and it's quite explicitly said this is to authenticate Jesus as 
the Son of God. So they say that authenticating role of, of miraculous gifts is no longer necessary because God has completed all his, his new works and so uh, 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 miraculous gifts of this sort are no longer needed. Some of them uh, go further and support it by some specific text, one of which is 1 Corinthians 13 verse 10. Paul uh, talks about uh, us prophesying (coughs) um, uh, 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 in prophesying at the moment that he lives, but he says, verse 10, when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. And so they argue that when when the New Testament canon, that all the books of the Bible are completed and God has completed his revelation of his truth, then uh, that, that, that there will be no longer any necessity for prophecies of those sorts. But it has to be said, nowhere else in Scripture is perfection, that word, used to describe the completion of the canon. It much more naturally um, uh, is, is associated with the, the end of all history, the new heaven and the new earth when Jesus comes again and there is no longer evil or sin or dying or anything and things are perfect. We must, I think, hear those people who point to the authenticating role of overt miraculous um, uh, signs. That does seem to be the dominant way that Scripture, uh, uh, the, the, the dominant purpose that they, they have in Scripture. But not the only purpose. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, uh, you see, in fact, miraculous gifts being used for the ongoing benefit of Christ's church. Not surprising that there is a shift, it seems, from a very sort of miracle-laden time of Jesus' life and immediately afterwards to, to uh, in, in, the, in the book of Acts, you see it, or in the later letters of the Apostle Paul, much less emphasis on miracles. It's not surprising that there have been times in history when the overtly miraculous has been less pronounced. We do not need to go beyond that to suggest that they have died out completely. Scripture just simply does not support that. It seems much safer from uh, examining Scripture to assume that actually supernatural gifts, gifts such as the ones described in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, are expected to continue. There may be, in the ongoing life of the church, a greater emphasis on teaching the truths about Jesus. In a a sense, it is not surprising that when Jesus came, there was this great upflow of authenticating miracles. But I think it would uh, be a bold person who would insist that Scripture clearly teaches miracles will cease 
For myself then, I want to say that it, we should expect to see God working in overtly miraculous ways. All Christians must agree that God still works miracles. We can differ perhaps on uh, whether miracles such as are described, uh, uh, miraculous gifts such as are described in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are, um, are still present. But it seems to me on the balance of scripture we should expect them to be. So, we've um, neatly slipped over so far the second question that we must answer. What are these tongues and prophecy that um, uh, are being spoken about in 1 Corinthians 14? Next week we will consider in more uh, depth how such gifts should be used in the ongoing life of the church. So in many senses um, uh, this week we're just going to be laying the foundations for that. And if you're just here for this week, apologies. Um, uh, you can, uh, if you're interested, uh, download next week's sermon uh, when it happens from our, our church website. So this week, just some foundational bits of understanding um, to help us to understand what Paul is talking about when he talks about tongues and prophecy. Of course, the, um, the word translated tongues or a tongue means just language. In the old English we used to talk about people speaking in different tongues and that, that's, that's, that, that's what, it, uh, what it means. It means a, a, a language. Eager div- um, uh, um, uh, anyone who speaks in a language, verse 2, um, uh, he, he's saying, but of course he's, he's using it in a slightly more technical way than that as it becomes clear as he describes the phenomenon that he's talking about. Another thing to say um, as we get into 1 Corinthians 14 is that there do seem to be different kinds of these miraculous tongues in the New Testament. It doesn't seem to be a uniform phenomenon. If you remember, in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, all the people on on whom the Holy Spirit came began speaking in tongues. And in that case, um, people who were visiting from far parts of the world clearly understood the language that they were speaking. It says that. They speak in our own languages, they say. Um, Whereas here, we will see in just a minute, um, it's expected that nobody within the congregation naturally will understand these tongues. They need an interpreter. So, although some people have tried to unite those two, and there are ways just about where you could understand them as exactly the same phenomenon, it seems more likely that that there are just multiple different things happening in the New Testament. 
and we shouldn't uh, try to make them all fit into one very neat box. So this is what was happening in Corinth that we're going to try to understand. And we'll try to understand it by making a, a, a series of statements or observations about tongues and then try to build on those um, some sort of understanding of what Corinthian tongues are all about. The first thing to say in the, from verse 2, for instance, is that they are not naturally understood by the people present. Anyone, verse 2, who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. Okay, so this is, a, this is, this is a, a language or something which is not immediately understood by people. It needs interpretation. Verse 13, for instance. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. It seems that the person themselves may be able also to vocalise an interpretation, which people do understand, or... Um, uh, 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 later on in, in, in chapter 14 it indicates that maybe another person has the gift of interpretation and can interpret this. But fundamentally what is vocalised is not naturally understood. A second thing to note perhaps from verse 4 for instance is that it is not for the benefit of others, it is primarily for the benefit of the person concerned. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies, we'll look at prophecy in just a minute, edifies the church. In other words, this, this, is, a, this is a personal thing, speaking, uh, uh, speaking in tongues. Verse 6 makes it plain, it's not really in its raw form, um, of of much use at all to the church as a whole. Brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instructions? Yeah? So it is for the benefit of the speaker, not for the benefit of the people of God uh, as a whole, it seems. Then in verses 14 and 15, Paul seems to clarify that it is, it is a communication with God which is beyond normal cognitive processes. Let me, let me try and uh, well, read 14 and 15 and then try to help you to understand that. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. He makes a distinction there between the mind, that, that is the, 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 our faculty to, to cognitively process things, to understand things, and the, the spirit, he says, which, which seems to have um, an ability to engage with God which is not just mediated by those mind processes. It is an engagement with God, a singing to God, a praying to God that is beyond 
those processes. But more of that in a moment. But we'll just try and get the, the basic things that Paul speaks of in our own minds. Then in verses 20 to 25, he, um, uh, he, he makes a long argument to say that tongues are of no value in public witness to the wider world. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, through men of strange tongues and through lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28, uh, there, which is a which is a passage in which uh, judgment is um, uh, pronounced on Israel, and the judgment will be that foreigners who speak a foreign lingo that they do not understand will invade them, and they'll be surrounded by people who who are speaking complete gibberish to them. And the crucial thing that Isaiah says is, even then they won't repent. In other words, people don't actually repent when they just see that sort of thing. Um, So, verse 23, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say, you are out of your mind? In other words, in the same way that it will have no effect on ancient Israel and they won't repent, it will have no effect on some sceptical unbeliever who comes in and sees people doing this stuff called tongues. It just won't won't achieve any great purpose apart from them saying, these are a load of weirdos. But, he says, just just to complete this argument... If someone who doesn't understand verse 24 comes in while everybody's prophesying, more prophesying in a minute, but let's just note that that seems to be un- communication that is, that is understood. He will be convinced by all that he's a sinner, will be judged by all the secrets of his heart laid bare and he'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming God is really amongst you. In other words, what we really want in terms of our witness to the world is for people to hear coherent things because that will lead to repentance Okay, so uh, that is a a summary then of the key things that Paul is saying about tongues they're not naturally understood they are for the private benefit of the speaker primarily and uh, only if they're made understandable are they any, any benefit to the wider um, uh, um, community of God's people. They are, it is a sort of communication which is beyond normal cognitive processes, beyond the mind, somehow with the spirit, and it is of no value in public witness. People then have wrestled with that basic data and tried to understand, well, what is it? Many people have suggested it is, a, it is another human language, tongues. And there are incidents reported, it's happened um, um, amongst us as a church, that someone has been uh, speaking in tongues and someone else has heard it as if 
it is some, uh, some foreign language that they themselves don't know, but they have heard it coherently. Unfortunately, from, from, from my point of view, I'm hesitant about that interpretation because um, in our modern world, of course, it's possible to record people's tongue speaking and it has been done at enormous length. And and recorded instances of people speaking in tongues, I'm not aware of any authenticated instance of someone speaking a language unknown to them, which is nevertheless a recognisable human language. So, I'm a little doubtful as to whether um, that is actually what is going on. You can challenge me on that if you like. Some people point to um, uh, an interesting little part of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and they suggest perhaps it is angelic language that people are enabled to speak. And uh, there, there is, that, that is tempting in certain respects. Um, and I wouldn't want to dismiss that. It may be as well that we cannot settle on one simple explanation because we've already seen within the pages of the New Testament there is a diversity of tongues experiences. One thing that makes me hesitate about the angelic language idea is that linguists, again, who have studied recorded versions, uh, recordings of people speaking in tongues, say actually... Even at, the, even at the basic linguistic level, it doesn't carry any, pattern, any patterns which are characteristics of any language that we know. Who knows what language angels speak in? Maybe, maybe there are entirely different fundamental rules of language in the angelic world. These things are well beyond our ability to, to understand. But it, again, it causes us to hesitate a little. Other people have, have suggested that perhaps it is, is, it is encoded language. That's perhaps even an encoded version of the person's own language. That would be quite strongly supported in the, in the sense of the observation again that people who are speaking in tongues never use vowel and consonant sounds other than the ones of their own language. They don't suddenly learn. You, you will be aware that some other languages have extraordinary, peculiar vowel sounds and consonant sounds. No one ever miraculously learns those. They always tend to stay within the confines of the vowels and consonants that they know. The suggestion is, perhaps it is some sort of encoded version of our own language. And again, it may be. I have to say that the, the tentative conclusion, if conclusion is the right word, that the tentative suggestion that I... I presently have settled on as I have examined this issue is that something slightly different is going on. 
I suspect, that's the strongest that I can say about it, I suspect that what is going on is that there is a communication between that person and God which is non-verbal which is, which is actually deeper and more profound than could be properly verbalised. And that the person with the gift of, of tongues, in a sense, has a, has a gift and an ability to sort of disengage their verbal apparatus and therefore free themselves up to that communion with God which is deeper and more profound and more precious than could ever, ever be expressed in words. We know in the rest of scripture, for instance, that all believers groan sometimes with groans that are beyond beyond verbal expression. Romans 8 makes that very plain. And it may be that this is just one this is one phenomenon of, of that sense of connection and communication with God. This time, a much more joyful, it seems, communication with God, which is beyond the verbal. And so what someone who is interpreting is doing is they are, uh, and this very much fits with, with observations that I've made of people who feel they have the gift of interpretation, they, they are able to tune in, to, to have some understanding of what that communication is, what communication is going on, and at least in an inadequate way put it into some form of words, which then does encourage the rest of the church. Now I offer that to you not as the answer but as uh, the best answer that I can come to as, as we explore this rather mysterious gift of tongues. It is absolutely important that we recognise that, that the height of true experience of God are beyond words. There's a story of a man who, who, who gained the epithet of praying Hyde. A man called John Hyde, I think he was, who was a missionary in India, who uh, um, was an extraordinary prayer warrior. And it's said that on one occasion he gathered with a group of people to pray and he began praying but actually in his case he didn't speak in tongues he was just silent for minute after minute after minute and it it was absolutely clear to those who were with him that there was profound communication going on between that man and his saviour but he, he, he couldn't vocalise it And in the end, apparently, all he said was, Oh Lord. We are miraculous people. If, you're, if, you're, if your knowledge of God 
can be reduced to a couple of sides of A4 or even a thesis. It is not the full extent of the knowledge of God that God wants you to have. And for some people, that experience of tongues enables them to engage and enter into a communion with God which is deeply precious and at the heart of what it means to be a believer. Let let, let me say to you as well, tongues is a part of this church's life. You may not see it exercised regularly and publicly because as we've seen from uh, uh, these points that the Apostle Paul is making, they're not particularly for public worship. But don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of that supernatural engagement with God. If you're a Christian, you've already embarked upon that road. And anything that can help you in that is something to be embraced and rejoiced in. Much more quickly, prophecy. I hope I'm right that this one's less controversial, so I'm giving it less time. If you tell me I was wrong, I'll try and correct it somehow. Um, A couple of statements, just to get very clearly in our minds what, what, um, in broad outline, at least the Apostle seems to be talking about when he talks about prophecy. One, One thing, Let's just go back a bit. One, one thing to understand is that the New Testament, the Bible generally, uses the word prophecy in a much looser way than we might like it to. The Apostle Paul on one occasion even calls a pagan um, a poet a prophet. So it doesn't always... It's not always when it uses the word prophet speaking of exactly the same thing. There are, of course, the great prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel who spoke with authority and whose words ended up in Scripture. But that is not always the case in, uh, in the Bible. And in the New Testament, the word prophet seems to be used in, in the looser sort of way. Um, um, here, then, I, uh, um, Paul... Is, uh, seems to be speaking of prophecy in that looser way, but crucially he is saying it is intelligible. Verse 3, anyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Verse 6, now brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Or verse 19, in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others, that's prophecy, than 10,000 words in a tongue. Or verses 24 and 25, if an unbeliever does, uh, who does not understand comes in while anybody is prophesying, we've already seen it, he will see the truth and be convinced and put his trust in God, we hope. Prophecy, as opposed to tongues, is intelligible speech. 
It clearly does not have the authority of Scripture. Verse 29, two or three prophets should speak and others should weigh carefully what is said. It is to be judged by the congregation. But uh, um, it seems to be a, a speaking of a divinely inspired insight into something which does not contradict scripture, is likely to be more local and immediate in, um, in its role, does not have the authority of scripture, so it must be weighed carefully by the church. In the New Testament, sometimes prophecies are ignored. But it is a word from God for the church. I don't think we need to define that too narrowly. I think when someone like me or, or you know, anyone who stands up the front here and goes beyond the immediate teaching of what a Bible passage says to trying to, to uh, and articulate what the Lord may be saying to us today, that is, in the New Testament uh, um, language, prophecy. Not to be treated as totally authoritative, to be weighed by the church, to be considered. But anyone who seeks to try to understand the times and apply God's truth to today's world is, is, is in one way or another exercising the gift of prophecy. Some will be more gifted in that than others. seems to me that's what the New Testament is talking about. Sometimes... Prophecies will be very, very specific. I have had in a few instances in my own life when I just knew something and it later transpired that it was absolutely true and I have no way of explaining that other than that God told me. Um, sometimes people have visions Pictures that just flash into their minds, um, and uh, they have to weigh it. They have to, and others have to weigh it and consider what 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 it might mean. And those things are fallible, but we belong to a God who still communicates to His people. The authoritative fundamental communication is in scripture and we should never understand this word prophecy as it may be exercised today in a way that, that contravenes the final authority of scripture but throughout the church down through the ages in every age even amongst those who, said, who thought that prophecy as it's described here was dead People have spoken and said, this is what I feel the Lord is saying to us. And that, I think, is what the New Testament is talking about with prophecy. So I return to what I began with. Are you looking for God to work supernaturally 
in 2010. That's the fundamental issue. Are you thinking, well, I'm just going to screw myself up to do a bit better in this, that and the other area and uh, I'll do my best and, and, and see what I can do? Or are you on your knees saying, I need to know you more, Lord. Give me any gift, please, that will help me to do that. I need to understand how to live my life, Lord. Give me any gift, give your church any gift that will help her to serve you better. Are you looking for God to work miraculously? There are churches that are gathered together for whom the miraculous is a distant memory. They may be very well organised. They may even be very well taught. But they're dead. A real church, a real believer, is a miracle. And that's what we need in 2010.